I'm here to preach our fifth sermon. Thank you, Peter, for the first four. <laughs> Fantastic job. Uh, this one's a little wobbly. I'm going to switch it out real quick. How's everyone doing? Fantastic. All right. I'm going to, don't mind me, just move this. Sorry about that, Jessica. And make my, okay. All right. You know what? We're family. It's a little messy. It's okay. Uh, my name is Alberto Lopez. I, I serve here as one of the campus ministers to Texas State. Uh, if this is your first time out, welcome. Uh, we're so excited that you're here with us. Uh, so we're just going to jump into the Word. For the past five months, we've been uh, opening up the Book of Romans, just preaching different series as we journey chapter by chapter through this book. So what we're going to do today is take a break from the Book of Romans before we start our next series to preach a standalone message on everybody's favorite subject, money. Hallelujah. Yes. Uh, this morning, uh, in light of the holiday season that's coming up, uh, the elders and I have decided that the best way to prepare our hearts for the holiday season is to preach a message on the subject of money. So one of the temptations of the world that we live in regarding money is this. Uh, we work more. We buy more. And we repeat. We work to pay the bills, rent, mortgage, car note, cover our basic standard of living. Whatever's left over, we used to kind of indulge and, and resource our hobbies, whatever that is. And then we repeat. We work, we buy, we repeat. And if this is our primary way, primary view on life, and how we live, this temptation leads to a stressed out, hollow, greedy, unsatisfied life. And you might find yourself thinking, well, that's not my temptation because I have no money. <laughs> right? This message is still for you. You have something. And the temptation there is to live a life, maybe if you don't have a lot of money, you live a life that's preoccupied on money. And you find yourself constantly thinking about how different your life could be if you had more money. How you could work less if you just had a little bit more income. How students, you could study more if you weren't at work all the time. Parents, how you could be at home with the kids if work wasn't keeping you so busy. And the temptation there is to preoccupy yourself with the what if. Constantly having your mind on what money can do for you instead of setting our minds on God and what he can do for us. And so instead of trusting God and keeping our mind on him, we're, we're lusting after more money. And so how do we keep ourselves from falling into this temptation? I want to suggest by valuing Jesus more than anything this world has to offer and by stewarding what God has blessed us with, our money and possessions well. And so the elephant in the room is, uh, it can kind of be, it can be weird to talk about money because of the misuse and abuse that maybe we've experienced or seen growing up. Uh, to clarify, there is, there is no hidden agenda. We're not raising money for a, a Prius so I can be like Pastor Peter. None of that's happening here. Uh, we are a family. This church is not a business. Um, and as a family, we want to honor God and make disciples. And Jesus says, what we do with our money, how we handle our money, either advances the kingdom of God or advances our kingdom or the kingdom of darkness. And so we're going to jump right into the word. Will you stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. It says this. 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. With the remaining time I have with you, I want to walk us through three observations that will help us frame this text and give us better insight and understand, into understanding how to be a generous people of God. First observation is two treasures. The second observation is two perspectives. And the third observation is two masters. Two treasures, two perspectives, and two masters. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for gathering us here today as we prepare our hearts to remember you. Lord, I know that uh, this subject of money can be sensitive and almost a stumbling block and a distraction. Lord, I I pray that um, any ideas or or bad experiences that maybe some of us have had about money and the church, Lord, would not be a distraction, God. But I ask that you would open up our eyes and ears to be present and to see you in this text and be transformed by the word. In Jesus' name, amen. So a little background on money. Roughly 15% of Jesus' teachings were about money. It's a lot. 11 out of 39 parables were about money. 2,350 verses are about money. That is twice as many verses than prayer and faith combined. Money alone was one of Jesus' most talked about subjects. So if you're like me, you might be wondering, how could the Bible's author justify spending so much time on money? Why would Jesus talk about money more than heaven and hell? I mean, didn't Jesus know what was important? Surely not money, right? Like, Jesus, talk about the weightier things. I mean, what's your view on creation? You were there? Is it young earth, old earth? Tell us more about it, Jesus. Tell us more about the problem of evil. Tell us more about the gray areas of life. What does this mean? We often think, leave, leave the money business to us. And we like to live lives like we have this area of our own lives figured out. After all, my temptation is to think that there's nothing spiritual about money. Nothing spiritual about money and possessions. Those things are physical and earthly. The Bible, the Bible's religious. The Bible is spiritual. Money, money is secular. God is all about love, right? All about grace, all about peace. That's his business. It's our business how we handle our finances and do whatever we want with our money. It's our business, not anyone else's. I was raised to believe that, that money is yours. You can do whatever you want with it, and no one can tell you otherwise, and nothing could be farther from the truth. It's not your money, it's God's. It's not your own life, 
God owns your life. And this is good news because we were created by God and for God. And this means that no amount of money or material possessions can satisfy, fulfill, or change us like living for God and being in a relationship with him. And so Jesus spends a considerable amount of time talking about money. So surely there is something about money that Jesus wants us to understand. That if we don't, it's going to limit our discipleship experience. So let's consider the context for a moment. This part of the text is coming from a sermon Jesus is preaching called the Sermon on the Mount. In this sermon, Jesus outlines the values of the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount teaches us what it means to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom. He speaks on subjects like anger, lust, love, giving, prayer, and fasting, to name a few. He teaches his followers what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven. And so the people that are listening and learning from Jesus, leaning into his teachings, are people who want to be like him and want to live like him. Matthew 4, 23 and 25 through 25 gives us a little bit more context. It says this, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pain, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. So who was his audience? The disciples. The following that Jesus had gained, the disciples wanted to be like Jesus. And if you've ever tried to live out Jesus' teachings, and you were not motivated by love and a desire to be more like him, you might have realized that it's a real difficult thing to do and keep up. You see, the Christian life cannot be lived out of self-driven efforts. It's one that's lived by grace-driven effort. And what this means is that when we come into the family of God, the Holy Spirit gives you new life and new desires and gives you the power and ability to live out the life that Jesus modeled for us. And so Jesus, he's a master teacher. And like any good teacher, Jesus is able to identify the problems and offer helpful solutions and insights. And so the problem that Jesus identifies is one that he knew had the potential to be a great stumbling block and keep us from living for him. As you've already guessed, that subject is money. Jesus said more about money than any other subject because money has the ability to reveal a person's real nature. Money is a good indicator of a person's true character. I love this quote by Richard Halverson. He says, throughout the scripture, there is an intimate correlation between the development of a man's character and how he handles his money. How we handle money and what we do with it does not lie. It is a very clear statement to God of what we truly value. See, money is a rival God that competes for our allegiance. Money reveals our true priorities. And money, when it is misused and abused by people, does quite a few things. Money can divide. We've seen money and greed 
have the ability to divide people, nations, and families. Money can destroy as it corrupts hearts. Money can distract, distracts people from seeing God and occupies our thoughts and holds our attention. And our misuse and abuse of money is a heart issue. The love of money leads to all sorts of spiritual and ethical problems. Here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. Godliness without contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, a trap, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. How you think about money will impact how you behave with it. How you think about money and what we do with it reveals our spiritual condition. Quote by John Piper, money is the currency of human resources. So the heart that loves money is a heart that pins its hopes and pursues its pleasures and puts its trust in what human resources can offer. God's currency is grace. Man's currency is money. Isaiah 55, 1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Jesus wants us to be free from the love of money. Why? Because the love of money is essentially faith in money. The love of money is essentially faith in money. And what is faith? Faith is trust, confidence, assurance, and belief. Essentially, the love of money is placing your trust, your confidence, assurance, and money believing that money will meet all of your needs and fulfill and satisfy you, change your life, and fix all of your deepest problems. The danger here that Jesus says is that your heart either trusts God or it trusts money. No one can serve two masters, Jesus says, for either he will hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So let's look at verses 19 through 21 as we talk about observation number one, two treasures. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So let's talk about this word treasure for a moment. The word treasure here is used to refer to things we value and look to to bring us joy. It can mean money, possessions like clothing, jewelry, book collection, your retirement accounts, whatever you look to to bring you joy. So my question for you is, what is your treasure? Here are a few questions by A.W. Tozer that may help us discover what we treasure in our own lives. Question number one, what do we value most? Question two, what would we most hate to lose? Question three, what do our thoughts turn to most frequently 
when we are free to think of what we will. What do you treasure? If you need help answering this question, all you need to do is look at your bank statement from the past month and your calendar to see where your time and money goes. See, 99% of my household arguments are centered around money. Uh, I'm laughing because my wife is in kids' church, so this is, my, this is therapy right now. Uh, go ahead and judge me, okay? I don't care. So we follow a pretty strict budgeting app. We, we sit together at the table, and every other night or so, we kind of plug in our transactions into different categories. And I kind of dread these moments because she always asks me the same question. What did you spend $11.32 on on Amazon? I'm like, I had to buy a book. She's like, you didn't read the last book. And, and I've had to tell her, there's, there's two different hobbies. There's buying books and there's reading books, okay? I'm, I'm in the buying books hobby, okay? She reads them. She's like, why'd you spend $1.62 at McDonald's two days in a row? And I'm like, you know, a beverage just tastes different out of a McDonald's cup, okay? She's like, but we have Coke at home, but it's different, and then, and then I get to ask her, what did you spend $32 at Target on? And she says, hair products. And I'm like, okay, this one took me a while to understand and, 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 and you know, give grace to you. Because what I've come to learn and have had to accept is that her hair is an investment, okay? And that uh, stewarding black hair is different than stewarding wavy, non-Afro-textured hair, okay? So if you have any questions, I can answer them after service, all right? But we kind of go back and forth. Why'd you waste money on this? Why'd you buy that? We're sticking to a budget. And when we look at our budget, our, our money reveals our priorities. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. But none of them are worthy of being worshiped. You see, Jesus is not against money and possessions. He's against poor stewardship of money and possessions and allowing money to take the seat on the throne of your heart. So he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. In other words, all the stuff that you acquire, you can't take it with you. As Job says, naked we come into this world, naked we depart. He says, lay up treasures in heaven. So what does this look like? I believe this refers to giving, and here's why. Jesus starts off this portion of his sermon in chapter 6 by addressing three spiritual disciplines. Giving, praying, and fasting. The first four verses in Matthew 6 are about giving, and Jesus' audience would have connected verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven with giving. This audience was familiar with giving. Remember, Jesus is addressing a Jewish group of people who are familiar with the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. So practicing giving was taught in the synagogues and homes. And so what he's saying is that you can lay up treasures in heaven by practicing radical generosity, by serving God and serving others. In other words, you can't take your money with you, but you can send it ahead. You can leverage your money to advance the kingdom of God. You can leverage your money to bless others and be a witness for his kingdom, or 
you can be greedy and stingy and use your resources to advance your own kingdom. Using your wealth to make this world a better place, laying up treasures in heaven. So let's look at verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where is your heart? Our hearts follow what we treasure. And our money and resources follow our hearts. Where your time and money goes, that's what you treasure. A quote by Randy Alcorn, what we do with our money doesn't lie. It's a bold statement to God of what we truly value. And so what Jesus is getting at, he's not talking about economic theories or how we should save our money or what kind of accounts we should invest in. What Jesus is getting at is the heart. He's asking, what do you treasure? What is the object of your joy? Is it money? Is it stuff? Is it a clothing wardrobe? Is it career success, a new car, a new laptop, or is it God? Your heart will be where your money is, and your money will follow your heart. So let's look at verses 22 and 23 as we arrive at our second observation, two perspectives. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So what's going on here? Um, It seems like a random portion of scripture that Jesus interjects in his sermon. It's helpful to remember that Jesus is a Jewish person speaking to a Jewish culture in their native language, and he's using figures of speech and illustrations that made sense to his audience. So when he starts talking about the bad eye and the good eye, these phrases carry very specific definitions. You see, good eye and bad eye are first century Jewish idioms. Good eye comes from this phrase, ayin tovah, and this means to be generous. So to be generous means that you look out on the needs of others and you practice compassion. To be generous in giving to others and to the poor. Bad eye comes from this phrase, ayin ra'ah, and this means to be greedy. One who is greedy with money, self-centered, stingy towards others, one who is blind to the needs of people around you. So if you were generous during Jesus' day and age and people saw your generosity, they would say something like, that person has a really good eye. If you were greedy and stingy, people would say he or she has a bad eye. They're blind to the needs of those around them. And so these expressions are still used in Hebrew today. In Israel, when uh, people are raising money, they'll say something like, will you please have a good eye and support this cause? We see this phrase in Proverbs 22, 9, whoever has a good eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. So in this moment, Jesus is using literal vision as a metaphor for perspective. Perspective is the way we look at life and how we see the world. The idea is this. If you look out on the world around us and all you see is what you want more of, I want this outfit, I want this accessory, I want these shoes, I want this book, I want these products, I want this and I want that. If that's all you see, I want the latest iPhone, then your whole body will be filled with darkness because you will be consumed with this unquenchable desire for more. I need more, I need more, I need more. 
But Jesus is saying, if you look out on the world, and rather than viewing the world as something that it can give you, and you start seeing the goodness of God in all of creation, then everything this world has to offer is a wonderful gift from a wonderful father. The best things in life, the things that we have and enjoy are a gift from God. And if we practice generosity, if we share, if we give, your whole body will be full of light. So recall, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching in such a way that he is purposefully challenging people's perspective on life. He knew that when he was starting to challenge people's view on money, that a part of his audience was going to check out. He knew that as soon as he got up and moved to the next location and invited people to follow him, some would stay because they were gripped by this idol of money. And they couldn't see themselves giving up everything they had in order to follow Jesus. And so Jesus is challenging our perspective on life. You see, most people have an earthly vision, vision that is very limited and short-sighted. It's vision with no higher purpose in mind. It says something like, what's the point of living for a higher purpose? It's my money, and I can do whatever I want with it. Jesus is challenging us to live with kingdom vision, to live with eternal perspective. Kingdom-minded people understand that what we do with our life and our money matters, and it affects others around us and has weight on eternity. Kingdom-minded people understand that this home is temporary, and Jesus calls us to live differently because he's challenging us to see differently. Eyes that are set on the person of Christ see everything differently. He's challenging us to see with eyes that are set on him, eyes set on eternity. Last observation, two masters, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can have God and you can have money, but you cannot serve both God and money. A great way to think about this is in the context of relationship. You can have several jobs, you can have a handful of friends, a handful of family members, but you can only have one spouse. And this relationship with God is very exclusive. If you have a non-King James translation of the Bible, you might have noticed that there's a footnote for the word money. It might reference you to a place in the bottom of your Bible, and it says something like this. There's a Greek word there, mammon. And this word means money and possessions. So a number of scholars argue that mammon was an ancient false god, like Zeus or random other ancient false god. I don't know by name. Uh, And so if this is true, if mammon is an ancient false god, then the one and only rival God that Jesus ever calls out by name is the God of money and possessions, mammon. And like all false gods and idols, they are not only against the one true God, but they try to substitute the one true God in our lives. 
And when, call, when Christ calls money and possessions mammon, when he names it, when he personifies money and possessions, he does this to put on display how dangerous money can be as a God substitute and as a false messiah. And so what makes money a dangerous false god? Well, like all false gods, money claims that if you have me, if you serve me, I can make you happy. I can give you peace. I can satisfy you. I can meet all of your needs and fix all of your problems. If you have me, you can uh, resource your activities and hobbies, and I can give you identity and purpose. And here's the scary thing is that no one in this room would publicly claim that they submit their lives to a false god. It sounds too archaic. That's, that's old-fashioned. Yet this is the point that Jesus was driving home. Either you're living your life for God and with God and you're trusting him and you're loving him or you're living for something or someone else. And this is the reality. If Jesus is not your God, something or someone else is. And Jesus correctly identified that if it isn't God, then it is money. Because money is the resource, the currency that we use to pursue whatever it is we think will satisfy, fulfill us, change us, bring us happiness and joy. There is no option C. It's either option A or option B, and you can't prove Jesus wrong. Reminder, there's nothing wrong with having money. There is something wrong in our hearts when we make it our God. To further quote Randy Alcorn in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, he says, Our use of money and possessions is a decisive statement of our eternal values. What we do with our money loudly affirms which kingdom we belong to. So here are a few diagnostic questions I've come across that help reveal which kingdom you're living for. Number one. What do you seek first? What do you seek first? When we make our way down chapter 6, we arrive at verse 33, a very familiar verse. If you've been following Jesus or grew up in church, it says this, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added to you. Whose counsel do you seek first when it comes to a major purchase? You check your bank account and say, do I, do I have enough money to afford this? Or do you seek the Lord? Father, is this how you want me to handle my money? And this, is this what you want me to steward with what you've blessed me with? What does God want me to do with my money? What does God want you to do with your future, with your career, with your family? At the center should be the kingdom of God. Question two. Does God get the first and the best? Does God get the first and the best? Whatever you give your first and best to reveals what is truly God in your life. Quote from Pastor J.D. Greer. Whatever we give our first and best reveals what we treasure. If you need help thinking through this, what is the first thing you do with your paycheck? 
Do you practice generosity and thanksgiving through tithing and honoring God with what he's blessed you with? Or is the first thing you do, think to yourself, all right, now I have some money, pay the bills, and then let's go to the San Marcos outlets and party it up. Treat yourself. Does God get your first and your best? Question three, are you an owner or a steward? Are you an owner or steward of the things God has blessed you with? What is your view? What is your perspective on your money and possessions? Is it yours? Does it belong solely to you? Or is it God's? If someone were to take it away from you, how would you respond? Is it yours or is it God's? Do you view the money and possessions and things you own, that you've grinded and hustled for? Is it for your own pleasure and gain? Or do you view money and possessions as gifts God has blessed you with to steward and use as God pleases? If this is the life that that Jesus calls us to live, If this is the kingdom that he wants us to live in, how do we get in on it? I believe through kingdom transfer. This comes from Colossians 1.13. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus died on the cross. At the cross, we see the power of sin broken over our lives. We see the power that money has over us, the the hold that possessions has on our lives, how we run to money and run to possessions to identify and fulfill us. We see that power is broken so that every single barrier can be removed and we can freely run to Jesus, unrestricted, where we find all of our hope, joy, purpose, and love in him, something that no amount of money could ever purchase for you. Jesus does this so that he could take us from the normal, ordinary lives we're living on on what I've heard is called like this hedonistic treadmill where we're just running after the next thing that we hope is going to satisfy us, but it's a cycle. and, And the only way that we can get off of this treadmill is by placing our faith in Jesus and seeing how he alone can fulfill and satisfy us like nothing else can. And he transfers us from this way of living, from this lifestyle. And he adopts us and he brings us into his family so that we could live out the life that he's outlined for us in Matthew chapter 6. So that we could live out the life that we see him live all throughout the scriptures. One of radical love, radical faith, and radical generosity. And we can live this life out because he's made a way for us to live it out of grace-driven effort empowered by his spirit. So so what do we do now? What do we do with this information? Here are some next steps that that I want to do, and I want to invite you to do it with me this week. One of the great things about the teachings of Jesus is that you can just, you can try it. And and just, you can try it, and you'll begin to notice that it's, it's a better way to live, because it is. So you can give it a week, and then give it another week, and then, boom, you see, this is awesome. Uh, that's not very practical, but you can try it. And so here we go. So here's some next steps. What I want to do is I want to experience Jesus more. 
Why? Because one experience with Jesus changes everything. In Luke chapter 19, there's a story of Zacchaeus, a tax collector who would defraud his community. And he has one experience with Jesus where he experiences Jesus' radical love and mercy. And in one moment, he goes from being this tax collector who robbed and abused his own people to reconciling all accounts and paying back everyone he's ever robbed. One experience with Jesus changed everything. You see, when you experience Jesus, you become more like Jesus, overflowing with love, grace, and generosity. I want to experience Jesus more so that I can be more like Jesus. The second thing I want to do that I invite you to do with me is I want to think about Jesus more than I think about money. I want to think about Jesus more than I think about, oh, I wish I had this thing or that thing. I want to trust Jesus more than I trust money. So practically, I want to open up my Bible more than I open up my budgeting or banking apps. What the first thing my eyes get set on is, is the word of God and not what I have or don't have. I want to invite you to practice radical generosity with me. So these are things that my wife and I do that, that I want to invite you to do if you're not doing already. Uh, we, we tithe. We practice generosity. We give to this local church because we believe in the mission and vision of this church. And we believe that, that God can do more with 90% of our income than we could do with 100%. We've tried and we've failed. So we want to practice radical generosity. We give to a couple different missions organizations. We want to see the kingdom of God advance. So so we put our dollars and support uh, missionaries in this movement and other movements so that we can see the gospel advanced. We try to give away money. We try to bless people with with grocery money or, or buy a meal here and there for someone. We want to stretch ourselves. So one thing that, that, that I like to do is that when I start worrying about money, I try to give it away. I know that doesn't sound very practical, but, but it works. Because what I've realized is that it's not necessarily that I don't have enough money. I'm just not being a good steward of what God's already blessed me with. And practicing generosity helps me recenter my thoughts and my mind and my life on God. And looking to him to support and provide, and take care of us. And so maybe you're in here and you're thinking, well, I have no money. I don't know what to do with money because I don't have any. You have something. And you can practice generosity where you are. And the scriptures say that he who is faithful with little will be faithful with much. So the idea isn't let's wait until God blesses me with an awesome income so I can start giving and sharing. Everyone has something to give. Everyone has something to share. And the lives that we live put on display the God that we believe in. You can practice generosity. Last thing, I want to seek first. I invite you to do that with me. Constantly asking the Holy Spirit for help and wisdom in how to steward your money and possessions. Asking for direction in how to use your resources to advance God's kingdom. Seeking first Jesus and nothing else. See, one of the reasons why Jesus also talks about money so much is because it's, it's such a subtle temptation. 
I've heard one commentator say that, that Jesus talks more about money than adultery because when you're committing such a physical act, it's not something random that happens. It's not like you find yourself in a room with another person's spouse. An activity, a life builds up to it. But money is so subtle. So you could be coming out of this experiencing worshiping God, being on fire for him, and then you remember, oh, this bill is due. Or you remember, I don't know if I have enough money for this. Or you begin to see something and you desire it and you want it and it sneaks up on you. And so it's a rival God that is vying for our allegiance. And Jesus says it's a poor God. And only when we place our faith in him and trust him as our true master, our lives will be filled with light. But as long as we continue to look to money and possessions to satisfy and fulfill us, he says your body will be full of darkness. You cannot serve two masters. And church, I invite you with me to serve the one true king who is worthy of all of our worship, all of our praise, all of our finances. Let's close in prayer.